Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 40, Reversal of Fortune. Last time, as April of 43 wound down, Seamount Rodhauser and Tuvia, the leader of the scouts for the ZOB, had, by some miracle, bumped into each other somewhere in the maze of sewers below the ghetto. And although everyone was tired and freezing from being in the waist-high sludge for over an hour, scouts were sent back to get Zivia and the remaining 40-odd fighters, while Seamount took Tuvia and the rest to the pickup point under the corners of straight and hard streets. But though Sema had marked the sides of the tunnels with chalk to speed the progress of the last group of ZOB fighters, they still didn't get to the meeting point until 11 a.m. the next morning. That had been the fault of Zivia, or rather, her desire that they all go out together. Not knowing the success of Tuvia's little party, she had sent Artstein and several fighters to scour the ghetto, to look for Tuvia and to make sure the Germans were safely, for everyone, in their barracks. But while that party was out, the two scouts had returned from meeting Sima, and his orders had been clear. They were all to leave, now, if they wanted to get out. The window of opportunity was obviously treacherous, but it also had a time limit. The two moving trucks would only wait above the manhole cover for them in the dark, once daylight came, they had to leave and hide in the woods, for their own sake. The question of should they leave or not, without Artstein and his group, started a heated debate between Zivia and Edelman. First, Mark yelled that if they wanted to live, and who didn't, they had to follow Simha's instructions. If the Germans didn't overrun the entire ghetto the next day, perhaps the trucks could come back. Perhaps was it good enough for Zavia? But Edelman continued to work on her. He knew he couldn't just shout at her. He had to wear her down. And he did. But it took hours. Finally, he had to use the one weapon that would work on her. Logic. There were only two trucks, and between them and the scouts already waiting, that was fifty people right there. There was not enough room for all of them anyway. Artstein and his were left behind. As they started to leave, the civilians jumped up, yelling they wanted to go too. Edelman said the pickup was for the ZOB only. Perhaps, again, perhaps, the trucks could come back for them. The civilians didn't like this at all, and certainly outnumbered the fighters. But Mark's people had the guns. They set out, but as so many of their number were injured, they practically had to be carried through the sewers which meant it took four hours to reach Tuvia, who was by then taunt with apprehension. When Sevilla and Edelman made it to the location, their first question was, where in the hell was Sima? But Tuvia explained that Sima had to go with the drivers, if only to make sure they came back that night. They certainly couldn't wait around for hours parked on the street. That would arouse suspicion. As strange as it seemed to them all, Life was still going on, for the most part, normally up there. Outside the ghetto, big trucks didn't just park themselves in the middle of the road, for no reason. The rest of the day moved along slowly. They could hear the vehicles go by, could hear people talking, 
saw shadows as the Gentiles, or Germans, walked by, or over the manhole. Those below had no choice but to remain silent as they stood in the freezing waste. Finally, night came to the topside world. The little bit of sunlight that had come down to the ghetto survivors disappeared. Sometime during the early part of the night, a note floated down to the person standing directly under the manhole. It read that no attempt could be made tonight, as the German patrols seemed more numerous than normal. Those standing in the sludge had to wait another 24 hours, which meant they had to stop each other from collapsing and disappearing under the flowing brown water. But they couldn't wait. That would require more than their weakened bodies could endure. As the next night crawled on, Zavia and Edelman whispered to each other and decided, even if they all died, even if they were all captured, they were going to climb up and make a run for it, trucks or no trucks. Dawn was just breaking. At that very moment, though those below could not see, Simha was standing over the cover, trying to decide what to do. He and Tuvia had spent the time with the man by the codename Shrub, a criminal, who was organizing the rescue trucks. Shrub and his men had made plenty of money over the years, threatening to turn Jews in unless they paid up. And if who they were rescuing were now a bunch of Jews, well, he and his wanted to be paid, and paid well. The two topside Jews spent the night denying the people below were Jews and watched Shrub to make sure he didn't either cancel the trucks or demand a princely sum. Of course, the home army wasn't charging the Jews. This was Shrub and his men alone, though thousands of others throughout the capital were doing the same thing. Sima, with his blonde hair and unsemitic features, kept repeating his tale throughout his time with Shrub. Those weren't Jews. They're just like me. Do I look Jewish to you? Shrub bought the story, but only just. So, with fatigue in his eyes and doubt in his head, Sima was shocked when a soggy piece of paper emerged from the ground between his feet. The note simply read, It's now or never. He could feel the anxiety and fatigue that emanated from the paper, and knew what Zivia and Edelman were capable of. If they were coming topside, he couldn't stop them. Something had to happen, and it couldn't wait until nightfall. Then one of those working with Simha came up with the idea of renting a moving truck, and then hijacking it to use for the escape. Brilliant, Simha's addled mind thought. He nodded, and within seconds, someone was placing a call. But only one truck showed up. The moving company couldn't spare another. It would have to do. The driver was removed from the truck and tied up. Then it was parked right next to the manhole. The cover was lifted. And to the amazed eyes of the people on the street, zombie-like creatures who seemed all to be wearing brown and who smelled awful started climbing out. But as they were all weakened by their travails, really, they were lifted out. But the process had begun. Still, time went by too slowly for Sima. Soon, a Polish blue policeman noticed the strange sight and started walking over. Sima spotted the man and ran over to him. Whispering, he let the officer know 
this was a home army operation, and the official certainly knew what would happen to him if he crossed them. Besides, Sima also showed him the butt of his pistol. The cop sauntered away. Soon the truck was full to overflowing, yet there were still twenty or so people still down there. Sima told Edelman and Zavia it was time to leave. Zavia shouted no and shoved at Sima, but he came back with, he was in charge, this was his operation, and they were leaving, now. As the truck pulled away, he promised Zavia to send the truck back for the rest. Zavia shouted no, all the way out of the city. Waiting for the truck were the 40-odd ZOB members of Baruch Spiegel. They had been there for a week and realized their camp was only one of hundreds that ringed Warsaw. Of course, the vast majority of the others were composed of Gentiles. The Germans might have controlled the urban areas, but the forests belonged to the people. Baruch approached the truck, ready to help his exhausted brothers and sisters out. When he saw Zavia jump down, pull out her pistol, and aim it at Sima's head, Sima returned the gesture. After a few seconds, her gun lowered, followed by his. Later, Simha would tell the anguished sub-leader that he had sent the truck back, as promised, with Moselman in charge. But the truck, Moselman, and those fighters with him never returned, which proved the point Sima had made. They had to leave. Still, Lubetkin never forgave the younger man. Of the 500 original ZOB members, only these 80 remained. Over the next few weeks, the ZOB leaders, Zivia and Mark Edelman, returned to Warsaw to help Zuckerman. They were now the coordinators of the remaining ZOB fighters, who were sent further east, close to the Bug River. It was there the various anti-Nazi forces were gathering, waiting for the day to unleash hell on those who had done the same to them. But within days of the ZOB soldiers moving and living in the woods, they found another hell that had nothing to do with the SS. Instead, they found themselves the victims of wolves and the cold. They lacked the knowledge needed to live off of the land. So, some of them, having survived the horrors of the ghetto, started dying. If that weren't enough, soon their makeshift camp was raided, and then raided again. It wasn't the Nazis, though they occasionally sent in heavily armed patrols to punish those who interfered with their rail lines. No, it was either bands of criminals who owed loyalty to no one, or one of the many anti-Jewish groups their elders had been fighting before the war. Soon the ZOB members were down to 50, and they comprised about a third of the People's Army, not to be confused with the Home Army. The others in the group were of the Gentile Communists, or escaped Soviet POWs. But the attacks against the Jews continued, mostly in the form of several someones shooting through their meager huts during the night. That was it for Baruch. Some of the others might decide to stay, but he and his girlfriend, Shaika, were heading back to Warsaw. There they understood the danger. Tragically, by the time the two lovers left the forests for the urban jungle, their numbers were more than cut in half. By October of 1943, Zavia and Edelman found it necessary to move to a different 
safe house at least three times within the capital. The reason was simple. Someone was on to them and burning down the structures where they dwelt. There was no telling who was informing. The only thing they could do was stay one step ahead. And as much as the two ZOB subleaders would have loved to have accessed some of the 28,000 Jews still hidden throughout Warsaw and its surroundings, they knew from experience it was a waste of time. Those multitudes had never been in the ghetto, had been able to hide on the Aryan side, either through duplicity or thanks to the kindness of Gentiles, all this time. Either way, if they weren't willing to risk their lives then, they certainly were not going to step forward now. SS General Jürgen Stroop had already officially declared Warsaw Judenrein, clean of Jews, as if they were some disease, on May 16th of that year, when he called his assignment to a close by destroying the great synagogue near Banker Square. Of course, he still hunted for these people. Berlin would have it no other way. But officially, he had rid the land of the general government of this menace. But the next greatest success of the hunt for Jews belonged not to General Stroop or the SS, but to Warsaw Gestapo chief Ludwig Hahn in an operation that is remembered as Hotel Poland. In essence, the Gestapo had utilized a, until now, little-known program that traded Jewish refugees for German POWs. For years, the World Jewish Congress had been obtaining visas for Jews and promising Germany to remove these unwanted people by buying strips of land in Latin America. The Jews would be removed from Europe, the Nazis' second best plan for them, and in return, receive some of their soldiers back. Mostly the Germans ignored this and slaughtered the Jews, which meant that many, many parcels of land across the Atlantic were just sitting there waiting for someone. But that summer of 43, Colonel Hahn put out the word that the general government was once again interested in the program. They needed more soldiers to fight the USSR, who had plans to spread communism throughout Europe. Of course, very few Jews believed the colonel, and who could blame them? But to prove his sincerity, a score of Jews were released from Peacock Prison, the only still-functioning entity within the ghetto, and set them up at the Hotel Royal in Warsaw. There, they were fed, clothed, and allowed to wash, and, after their paperwork was in order, sent to a village in France. The idea being, soon they would be on their way to South America. And this all happened, just as Colonel Hahn promised, Within a short time, postcards, photos, and letters flooded Warsaw from France. Also, within a short time, the Gestapo received thousands of requests to be traded. Such a success was the program that soon Jews were being housed at the larger Hotel Polsky on Long Street. Zuckerman considered the exchange for Zavia, who had been holed up literally in a single room since leaving the forest. She was coming undone by the inactivity, whereas Isaac had the leadership of the dwindling Z.O.B. thrust upon him with the death of Angel. And Edelman had Chaika. But the more he looked into it, the less he liked it. And he was right, of course. Just after 3,500 Jews offered themselves up, they were, instead of being shipped to France, 
soon found themselves dumped at Bergen-Belsen in northern Germany, from which they never left. Those Jews who had been waiting in France also ended up there, and their lives ended there as well. The last group at the Hotel Royal in Warsaw were sent to Auschwitz. Yes, officially, Warsaw was Jew-free, but the terror remained and was expanded. In October of 43, the war was not going well for the Axis. Mussolini was no longer in charge. U.S. forces possessed Sicily and were on the Italian mainland, which meant, of course, the battle in North Africa was over. German U-boats were being sunk at alarming rates. The British-led Commonwealth forces were back in Greece, having been pushed out in forty-one, and this stupendous tank battle of Kursk had gone against the panzers. Berlin decided that if an uprising occurred in the east while they were trying to hold off the Russians, the center of that would probably be Warsaw. So the terror campaign would now include the Gentiles, just in case they decided to resist. So, on October 13th, 1,400 men and just under 500 women, Gentiles all, were randomly gathered up and sent to Auschwitz. Nazi terror groups then just went throughout the city center and started gathering up large numbers of Polish civilians. And this nabbing of people off the street went on for a few more days, but then was taken to another level. To ensure the Poles were getting the message, the groups of Gestapo started on October 16th to simply line people up in the streets and shoot them. These people were not Jews. It was not known if they were hiding Jews. No, their deaths were serving a purpose. That first day of public shootings, 20 people were executed on Independent Street. On the 17th, another 20 were similarly put down in Wola, a blue-collar section. On the 18th, 60 people were lined up and shot down next to Woodrow Wilson Square. On the 21st, 60 more died in Praga. From there, the killers moved on and did their business along New World Street and Jerusalem Boulevard. This went on for six weeks. The Germans assumed the Poles got the message. But just in case they did not, the Gestapo took their message to another level. Instead of shooting people in the streets, they strung them up, from lampposts or from balconies along the street. This was deemed more effective, as the corpses would remain for days, weeks. So, too, with the message. With the people so subdued, it was time to take the fight to the real troublemakers, the citizen soldiers of the Home Army. SS units would capture low-level operatives, promise freedom for information, get what they needed, kill the poor sods, and then move up the political-military ladder from there. Many ranking officers of the Home Army disappeared after this, as did their families. Again, from the point of view of the Nazis, these people had to be removed, their organization disrupted, but also their family's death served as another example of the same message. Resistance would only end one way. By the end of winter in early 44, Baruch Spiegel had been hiding within the capital for six months. 
He had survived the winter much better here than his comrades in the forests, and he didn't even own a coat or pair of gloves. That was because he never left the attic he was in with his girlfriend in a large house on Mushroom Street. The house had once been in the southernmost part of the ghetto, but that section had been returned to the Gentiles to help with the housing shortage. Helping keep them sane, Zuckerman would come by twice a month with money to buy food from the family putting them up. There were many kind, like-minded people like Baruch's hosts, but this was also a business. During that winter, Zuckerman had also brought paper and pens along. He ordered the two to write down everything that had happened to them since the war. Zuckerman wanted to make sure their story survived, even if none of them did. By 1944, the ZOB had a new self-determined mission. As their numbers continued to fall, fighting was no longer an option. Now they would spend their time helping every Jew they could find in and around Warsaw, an estimated 20,000 or so. Survival was the order of the day, and that meant money. The SS and Gestapo were able to pull back from their search for Jews and focus on the Home Army, mostly due to Polish informants, called greasers. They would find Jews hidden away, extort money to keep silent, and then inform the Germans anyway. The standard deal was the greaser would get 20% of whatever the Jew or Jews captured had on them. According to best estimates, there were some forty to 60,000 Gentiles hiding Jews from the authorities, but some five to 10,000 greasers within Warsaw alone. And it only took one. But even for the Jews not found, the cost of food was staggering. It wasn't as if they could leave their place each day and work for money. They relied on others, and the ZOB wanted to fill that role. In fact, as Zuckerman helped get this enterprise going, those left of the ZOB had become an underground welfare agency. They helped with rent, food, and bribes. These three things kept the Jews under their aegis as safe as possible. And that job had become somewhat easier due to the Council to Aid Jews, set up in late '42. This was an organization started by the Polish government in exile that worked with the Home Army. Most of the time. After all, a lot of money flowed through various entities before getting to Zuckerman. Some of it stuck to certain hands. London was certainly doing its part to help with the funds. One reason for this was simply the guilt the Allies felt in not doing more sooner for the Jews, if that had ever been possible. But there were other benefits to this relationship between the Home Army and the Allies that had RAF aircraft dropping money into Poland. Home Army spies had discovered the Penamunda rocket base along the Baltic. That pride of Nazi Germany, one of the secret weapons Hitler believed would pull his chestnuts out of the fire, was destroyed by the British when word got back to London of its location. On April 19, 1944, the ZOB leadership, still in Warsaw, met in an apartment on Forestry Boulevard. It had been a year since the ghetto uprising, and those still breathing had their lives altered significantly.
The rest were remembered and toasted. Of the original 500 ZOB members, there were about 30 left in and around Warsaw, and fewer still hiding in the surrounding forests. But, be that as it may, as spring slipped into summer, the ZOB leader and sub-leader standing around, remembering all those now gone, decided the time had come to start fighting again. The Germans were going to lose this war. Zuckerman and his had to think of their people in the widest sense, in terms of a one day unoccupied Poland, and all the days after that. As Zuckerman, Zivia, Sema, and Edelman considered their military options, they watched the Nazi apparatus of the general government fall apart. In May, all German bureaucrats were given handguns to better protect themselves. German bombers randomly exploded while parked in between sorties. The blue police suddenly found themselves with fewer and fewer members. But most amazingly of all, the arrogant Volkdeutsch, the German citizens who had swept in and confiscated so much, suddenly found their manners and started treating Poles with respect, even helping some out with their lack of food. As for the German soldiers stationed around Warsaw, they, thinking of their future, started selling off their equipment and weapons to whomever could meet their price. No questions were asked. Those soldiers who were wounded sold their watches and other belongings to German nurses, who then turned around and sold them on the street. Everyone was gathering funds to survive the Germany that would be once it was occupied. Money was the answer to everything, as long as one survived until the end. Meanwhile, higher-ranking German officers were selling everything they had stolen over the years. They had taken items of jewelry and art for the price of a few bullets, and were now selling it back to whomever could afford it. Cash was so much easier to carry than gold or a painting. Then Warsaw was rocked as both sides of the conflict found out that on July 21st of 44, almost to the day of the third anniversary of the German invasion of Russia, Wehrmacht officers had tried to kill Hitler himself with a bomb. How the mighty have fallen. But the Germans and the Jews weren't the only ones thinking of the morrow. Premier Stalin had stopped his NKVD from killing enough communist Poles so they could form the Polish Committee for National Liberation. And this organization, at the behest of Moscow, started labeling the Polish government in exile as a usurper. The battle for post-war Poland had begun. The ZOB watched from windows as bedraggled German soldiers now limped west, when they had, just a few years ago, strutted east. Along with them were the families and non-essential personnel of German officers. And along with them were trucks and BMWs, anything that could convey those cherished back to Germany. However, that still left about 20,000 German troops within Warsaw, and they still retained their tanks, guns, and artillery. Which didn't change the fact that those Germans on the streets regardless of the guns in their hands, felt something was coming. 
The Polish citizens sensed the same thing and stayed off the streets unless absolutely necessary. The Jews, already in hiding, marveled that the streets of their capital now looked like an earlier version of the ghetto. And what came started on August 1st of 44. The city shook, gunfire exploded, seemingly from every direction. Everyone hunkered down. But the ZOB, like the Germans, had no idea what was going on. 